You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. You know, this morning we did talk to Governor David Ige about the agreement with Mayor Rick Blangiardi to let Oahu stay in the current Tier 3 of recovery rather than to revert back to the tighter restrictions. He stressed, though, that the public still needs to make sure that we don't let our guard down over the next four weeks. Rick Blanchiardi is coming into this pandemic in the middle of it, and so making sure that he understood what his authority was. It is working hand in glove. We do coordinate and talk about the state orders before we issue them and identify where the county orders fits in with the state orders. I think we, we came to a meeting of the minds. With this Tier 3, I know uh, Mayor Blanchiardi has said that outdoor youth sports will begin in a couple of weeks, and adult sports as well. But we just saw University of Hawaii, the football team just began their practice and they've got, you know, a handful of COVID cases. And I guess it makes me wonder, you know, about the testing, about the community testing. And and we have, you know, I understand a number of uh, expired tests sitting in a warehouse that we've already paid for. Any chance that, you know, if we get the get-go to use those tests, if they're still good, that they could be put to use in in that area? Certainly we are looking at what's the best use uh, for those tests. When we had CARES Act funds and it was something that we knew that we wanted to be able to do, increased testing, at the time that we had placed the orders, we definitely had identified a couple of needs and uses that we thought would be appropriate you know, being able to uh, test regularly in um, nursing homes and congregate living facilities being able to test um, regularly in uh, jails and prisons, and then thinking about testing as we knew that we would reopen public schools. We wanted to make sure that we did have the testing resources to allow us to, to do those things. Even though there is an expiration on those test kits, there is a way to validate that the kit is still visible, so we'll be able to use uh, the test kits even though they may be beyond the expiration date. And then there's the whole issue of the vaccine rollout. I know President Biden, you know, had that May 1st deadline out there, and then he's moved that up to April 19th, I think. But my latest understanding is that uh, we may have gotten word that we may not be getting all the vaccines that we had counted on. That's the challenge. We are very efficient. I do know that um, Hawaii has been in the top 10 states in terms of vaccinations. And we've been very focused and methodical about what we're doing. We didn't want to have the eligibility pool be 20 times more than the reservation because it just creates a lot of anxiety, people trying to call in and unable to get a reservation. We just thought it created more anxiety and stress in the community. And so we are concerned, but obviously we recognize that as the federal programs expand and they are uh, delivering vaccine directly to uh, pharmacies all across the state, uh, and they are committed to even expand that uh, to every pharmacy in the state, you know, we do know that the public will have uh, many options to be able to uh, get their vaccine. Do you think that April 19th is just not realistic? Well, I think we're going to continue to work toward that. I would just ask the public to be patient. You know, the the one thing that they may see if we can't get the vaccines to support um, the activity is that, you know, there may be a lot of people trying to get appointments 
and we have more people uh, than we have appointments available. And so people are just going to have to be patient in trying to get an appointment. And, you know, that's what we've avoided for the first several months of the vaccine rollout. But, you know, trying making everyone eligible beginning April 19th means that there will be a lot of people um, vying for very limited um, appointments. And we're starting to see some of the federal money, uh, you know, being, I guess, doled out to the states. Who's going to have control and say over where that money gets, you know, doled out to? There are direct appropriations for various kinds of programs. You know, for example, there is money coming to the counties for rent and mortgage relief. You know, we uh, just announced that uh, this week, you know, uh, enhanced uh, EBT cards um, for those who uh, are unemployed and eligible for free and reduced lunch uh, in the schools. So there, there's a number of those kinds of appropriations that are to the agencies uh, specifically for um, for safety net programs. Uh, and then there is the general aid to states um, that the state and the counties have gotten, which is... Um, is more flexible and the state and the counties can decide uh, how best to utilize uh, those funds uh, within the parameters that the federal government is is, is providing. So for those funds, uh, you know, the, the biggest difficulty, and we had the same challenge with the CARES Act funds, is that, um, you know, federal guidance, you know, the, the um, American Rescue Program has explicit penalty for um, funds being utilized in a wrong way of uh, having to repay all of the funds. So we want to be certain prior to spending the federal monies um, that it is for an eligible extent. Uh, In making calls yesterday, I was hearing that there's some talk at the legislature about maybe going into special session to see, you know, if there was some way that they could uh, have some say in where some of these funds were being expended. Are you concerned about that? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm open to working with them. I don't think it needs to be a special session um, per se. You know, we have been working with the legislature in um, standing up programs that we think um, both agree uh, would be helpful. You know, the restaurant card program, um, you know, rent and mortgage relief. I, I think there's a lot of uh, areas, and for the most part, I think there's general agreement uh, in how we should be using um, those funds. Um, so, you know, I think, uh, you know, I'm open. If they want to come back to special session, um, that's fine. I do, I do believe that there are many different ways that um, I can work with the legislature to ensure that the funds are spent uh, in a way that um, the legislature is supportive as well as um, the administration. And then anything you want to say about the vaccine passport issue? I, I know we saw, I think, at least what one state ban the passport idea, and you know others are, are balking at it as well. Uh, Catherine, I think the biggest challenge is um, trying to um, validate whether uh, someone has been vaccinated or not. Um, you know, we are uh, talking about it and, and looking at um, what or how we would implement um, those who are vaccinated into our safe travels programs, um, you know, both for inter-island as well as for trans-Pacific. 
you know, I, I do think that um, just talking to the mayors, they are willing uh, to do something for um, vaccinated uh, residents uh, in traveling inter-island. Um, so that might be something that we would look at um, first to, to, you know, see whether we can uh, confirm uh, that someone has been uh, vaccinated um, and then you know, they would be able to travel inter-island without quarantine. I see. Um, and then open yeah. it up to everybody broader. Yes. And then, and then uh, as we proceed, you know, one of the biggest challenges, um, Catherine, is that uh, the federal government said that they are not going to be um, establishing a national vaccination um, uh, record, um, you know, that they would be uh, working with uh, private sector uh, businesses and partners uh, to be able to do that. And, you know, uh, we have been working with um, two companies, uh, Clear and Common Path, uh, who are uh, leaders in um, uh, health records access. And, you know, we, we're running pilots with both of them to be able to uh, confirm um, lab tests that meet our criteria uh, for the Safe Travels program. Um, and um, both of those companies have uh, committed and are working on um, being able to verify vaccinations as well. So I think we're in a good place uh, as in that regard, you know, we are currently working with two companies that have the capability and the wherewithal to be able to um, uh, validate vaccination records. You know, they're committed to doing it in all 50 states um, and territories. So um, I think that that um, is very helpful. And we're working with them right now to incorporate uh, their platforms into the Hawaii Safe Travels program. That was Governor David Ige, who says that Hawaii may roll out its proposed vaccine passport to inter-island resident travelers first before opening it up to everyone else. Support for HPR comes from Nareet Hawaii, which represents real estate businesses committed to strengthening communities by supporting affordable housing, with support for nonprofits such as Honolulu Habitat for <coughs> Humanity. Learn more at NareetHawaii.com. Joining us for today's Reality Check is politics and opinion editor Chad Blair. He has a story about how a Hawaii Supreme Court uh, decision handed down in a long-standing water rights suit uh, was surprised a lot of people. Good morning, Chad. Hey, good morning, Catherine. How's the pledge drive going? It's going just fine and dandy. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, just to clarify, this is not the Hawaii Supreme Court. That There's actually a case very similar to this one that's still pending. The, the Supreme Court heard that last May. As a matter of fact, they did it remotely via Zoom or something. The first time they'd ever done that. But at, at the core, this is about the use of streams, stream water in East Maui. Uh, it is similar in the sense that environmental groups, Native Hawaiian groups have been suing Alexander and Baldwin, Maui County, and, and in particular the state, the Board of Land and Natural Resources, on whether it's the Pono thing to do, whether this diversion of stream water to go and help crops in central, central Maui is a good thing or not, or whether it's being done properly. And what a First Circuit Court judge found this week on Tuesday, that the land board is doing their job properly, that they're actually balancing uh, the needs of the Constitution. They're, they're taking its public trust duty seriously. That's according to Judge Jeff 
Crabtree. So I imagine DLNR's uh, pretty happy to think that, you know, <laughs> we, we're trying to do this fairly, but the environmentalists are, are probably a little disappointed. Yeah, that's, that's the exact right summary. Suzanne Case, uh, who chairs not only the, the, the land board, but also the Commission on Water Resources Management, that's also involved in these uh, these uh, water decisions, obviously, by virtue of its name. And, and, and she welcomed the decision. She said that her organization, her agency, is working very hard to meet their constitutional obligations, protect public trust. She, was that, she used that same word, balance. Balancing is key. But the people that actually filed this particular lawsuit, that's the Sierra Club of Hawaii, as you can imagine, they're not happy at all. And Marty Townsend, the director, she used these words. She said she's saddened. Uh, she's extremely disappointed in the court's ruling. Uh, they felt they had a pretty good case. And now they're trying to decide what to do next, whether to appeal this to a higher court. Okay, so I stand corrected, though. So this was not the big Hawaii Supreme Court decision over this, but just a lower court. Uh, yet still, um, still real not clear, though, on uh, you know what happens going forward. Right. And, you know, it's very easy to get this confused. I, I myself, as the person who's been reporting in this, get confused. Uh, and just briefly, that lawsuit that's still pending before the Supremes, that's from the Native Hawaiian Legal Corporation. And they're representing Terrell Farmers, um, Hello Carmichael. It's called the Carmichael versus Land Board case. Also, another another farmer, as well as a nonprofit, Namoku Apuni Oko Olaohui. And in a nutshell, they're arguing that uh, the BLNR and B have violated uh, the uh, the Environmental Policy Act. That's the state's own act. So that is ongoing. And if that wasn't confusing enough, <laughs> this issue is also be before the land board, which, of course, is the agency that actually gives A and B and other companies the right to, to do things like this under what's known as a revocable permit. The challenge is, is that for the last 20 years, they've been essentially giving A and B and their subsidiaries over and over again. Yes, we sign off on it, but Really, the plaintiffs, rather the defense, excuse me, the plaintiffs are saying, look, this keeps going on. It's unfair. Uh, you're taking water away from farmers that need it. Uh, you've been doing this forever. This goes really back to the 19th century, right, uh, when sugar came to town. Uh, but now sugar cane is no more. So why does A and B and EMI and others have to keep diverting the water? So it's understandable why we all get confused about this. This is also before the legislature. They've tried to deal with this legislatively uh, to very little effect in recent years. And uh, any word back from uh, A&B? No, I reached out to them yesterday. I expected they, they were going to respond. They did not. Uh, we should tell you that A&B, if, if you didn't know, sold off much of its property, that old sugar land in central uh, Maui, huge, huge acres of land to Mahi Pono, which is trying to work on diversified agriculture. And, of course, they very much want to have that water continued because it's a pretty dry area there in central Maui. Uh, so bottom line, I think the takeaway is this is not going to go away. We're probably going to be, you and I, talking about this again. Yes, as as the water runs. All right, thanks so much, Chad. <laughs> thanks, Kathy. That was Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. Head to HonoluCivilBeat.org to read that story and more. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from ProService Hawaii, offering advice to employers on managing business challenges due to the coronavirus. More at proservice.com slash COVID help or by calling 808-207-7634.
This is the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. You know, Julie Morikawa was seven when she danced hula with a halau on cruise ships and in hotels. That exposure to the visitor industry and sharing of aloha was the start of a journey toward finding her passion. She went to get on she went on to get a degree in hotel administration at Cornell University and today she heads Climb High as CEO. It's a group which is focused on giving young people an opportunity to find careers in the hospitality industry. Tomorrow more than 1000 students will get a virtual peek into job prospects in the visitor industry in what's called a lay event. Here's Morikawa. We have our lay event which is LEI stands for leadership exploration and inspiration coming up and we typically do it virtual uh, sorry in person and this year with the pandemic we have shifted to make it a virtual event and so we're um, excited to do a very robust event for our students all across the state and it will we've invited all of the high school students and um, some intermediate to attend so we're expecting over a thousand students to attend virtually and educators across the state. It's going to be on April 9th from 9 a.m. through 10.45, and it's very short. Usually the event is a whole day-long in-person event, but due to courses, classes, students coming back to school, lots of different things going on with the Department of Education, we wanted to be sensitive, and so we're cramming everything in to an hour and 45 minutes. So it is going to be quick, but there is going to be so much shared uh, for the benefit of our students. And is there a particular focus this year? The event is sponsored by the Hawaii Tourism Authority. They've been a wonderful partner across the last nine years of the event. And so it's focused on on the hospitality industry. We will be um, covering everything from the hotels to the broader industry. The governor and mayors will be joining us as well for addresses. And so overall, it's an inspiring day for our students to just know that they have a whole support network out there or whatever their career path goals are, we're there to help assist with those next steps for them. So as we try and get our young people interested in the uh, hospitality industry, we are also talking about how that picture might change and managing tourism, just creating a better experience all around for everybody, for the visitor and for the resident. Are you working any of that into the session? Absolutely. Regardless of the scenario or the situation for our industry, one thing remains the same, and that is that our keiki, our people of Hawaii, are paramount to the success of our industry. Without the aloha spirit, our most competitive advantage for Hawaii does not exist. And so through and through, we, we always advocate that it is our people that, that we want the most. And so that will continue, that it is about sharing with them that um, you know, this, the culture and the experience for people coming in is reflected through, through the people that come in to work in the industry. So we need them. And we are going to be covering many different aspects, exposing the youth to the, the different types of careers that are available in the industry and how they've changed and how they've adapted. We've put together three wonderful uh, videos, one of them being the types of careers that, that exist in, in the industry. And we have we videoed how things have already changed. We have elite, the elite parking. They've been adapting and adjusting, and they're doing the COVID testing and vaccinations, and so they've been um, helping with that. We've got salespeople that are showing how they're promoting their um, hotels and the destinations through FaceTime meetings with potential clients. 
So there's a lot of different different things that will be included and incorporated and how the industry will be changed when everything is fully reopened will also be addressed. And that's really the focus of um, a portion of the event on the 9th is to help our students understand the value of tourism. And in partnership with the Hawaii Tourism Authority, they have their values that they're, they're the impact of tourism. You know, they have their data sheets that, that they release. But we wanted to put it in perspective for the students and have them think about it and share it from from their own perspectives of, of what really matters to them. So we ran some focus groups leading up to this event. Uh, we just had some, some schools participate in that, some high schools and an intermediate school. And they took the value shared by the Hawaii Tourism Authority and drove down to what it really meant to them. And so we're excited to release this video on Friday and it will become part of the Department of Education uh, resources for the hospitality pathway moving forward once once we do release it. Uh, but it's it's really amazing to see what these students came up with on on that value and how it was impactful to them. And some of the the really great things to see was when they looked at things like air seats and and looking at how many people come in, their minds went to, wow, you know what? that's how I get out to my tournaments that I travel to on the mainland. That's how I get seen by recruits. Oh, wow. Does this mean that uh, when we talk about tax revenues, you know, and how that applies to them, some students in Kapolei were reflecting on, oh, wow, our parks and our schools and, and everything that comes from that tax revenue. And one student said, you know, does that mean that you're going to help fix Aloha? Does that tax revenue go towards Aloha Stadium and allowing me to play football in the stadium again? And so it was really great to have these discussions and, and allow the students to share freely, whether it was positive or negative um, perspectives on the industry, and, and come to their own conclusions and put this video together. And uh, so we're, we're excited to share that on Friday. And did the pandemic kind of put a crimp on maybe the number of businesses that were interested in partnering up this year? That's the, the wonderful story that, that I really like to share is just, you know, how many companies are so willing to help during these times. And, you know, we have another, not to change topics, but I know we'll get to the Climb High Bridge, but that's another wonderful story of over 225 companies coming together in the middle of COVID to, to still give of their time and their mana'o to our keiki. But yes, we had no problems at all. Everyone was so willing to help. And, and we actually have the opposite challenge of it's a virtual event for an hour and 45 minutes. We, we can't fit everyone. <laughs> and so we're um, having to select 25 speakers to um, get the point across. And then utilizing the Climb High Bridge, our online portal, we're having everyone load themselves up uh, whether they're speaking or not, so that the teachers can have access to them after the event and reach out and set up individualized guest speaking for their classes or career fair opportunities with all of the companies that are willing to help. So it's been overwhelming, and we're so grateful, and the Aloha spirit is alive and well, and, and that's the most important thing. We saw a number of hotels open up with ideas about, oh, can we do a travel bubble? You know, I think that helped out with the film industry. We are focused on on the types of opportunities that are available. And so during the program, we'll have hotel representatives, we'll have air transportation and activities, and everyone will be talking about the types of opportunities that are currently available and what they're looking for and how students can go on to pursue a pathway, a career path 
with these companies where they can start and where they can get to and what is required to, to get to that point. And so, yes, some things have changed. Some, some have stayed the same. But all of the companies are coming to share and coming to make sure that our students know that the industry is going to recover and they will be needing their help. And how did you get started in this business? You know, what, what struck you, I guess? What was your experience, you know, growing up? My passion is, is, is for Hawaii. I'm local. My roots are on Hawaii Island with my man Kohala. So, um, you know, it's, it stems from me being in that high school seat and aging myself now many years ago. <laughs> but it seems, it seems like, like not long ago. But just seeing that there was so many, so many options and I, I didn't know where, where my next steps would take me and needing more support in that. And as I continued in my career, which was in the hotel industry, uh, I, I took the technology path and opened up the Expedia offices for Hawaii and um, in Asia and different locations across the globe, but came, always kept tabs on Hawaii and just continued to see that there wasn't that connection between our number one industry, right, being hospitality, but let alone any other industry uh, for that matter for Keiki and wanted to make sure that that connection was made and, and that's where Climb High was born. And so we are well beyond just focusing on hospitality. The lay program does does continue to focus on our specific industry, but our other programs, the Climb High Bridge and uh, certificates, go well beyond that to statewide initiatives. But it's really the point about exposing our keiki to all the types of opportunities that exist here in Hawaii and helping them find those uh, steps to, to reach their goals. We want to show them that there are pathways here in Hawaii that they don't have to leave in order to to make it and to find economic stability or sustainability. That was Julie Morikawa, president and CEO of Climb High, talking about efforts to get our young people interested in careers in the hospitality industry, even as the pandemic has raised questions about our reliance on tourism. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, featuring island-style lunch at the open-air Homa Cafe and evening bar service on Fridays and Saturdays. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. The American Library Association's Newbery Medal is the most prestigious prize for children's authors. This year, it went to a Hawaii-born writer. When You Trap a Tiger by Tay Keller was published last year. It's about a Korean-American tween coming to terms with her sick grandmother and working a deal with a tricky tiger. Keller grew up in Waipahu, and it's her second book in the middle-grade contemporary genre. One of her inspirations is her mother, Nora Okja Keller, whose 1997 novel, Comfort Woman, explored the multi-generational trauma of Korean sex slaves during World War II. Tay also, uh, the book, or Tay's books also deal with identity. Her debut book, The Science of Breakable Things, was released in 2018 and, among several honors, was named an NPR Great Read of the Year. Keller spoke with the conversations Jason Ubai shortly after the release of When You Trap a Tiger. I've always been writing little stories, but I was really afraid of the idea of being published, so I kept telling myself, you know, I'm never going to try to be published, and I would just write my stories on the side. 
And I wrote this full story that I was so excited about. It's about a girl named Natalie who tries to save her mother's oppression by using her seventh grade science project. And this book came very quickly. And I showed it to my mom, who is also a writer. And, and I was just like, you know, I'm not going to try to publish this. It's what I don't want to be an author. And she read it and she was like, you need to submit this. You need to try to get this published. So that's how my first book came out. How did growing up with her influence your work? My very earliest memories are of her sitting at the computer typing her novels and me sitting next to her working on my masterpieces about my stuffed animals, um, <laughs> you know, trying to solve mysteries and crime fiction. And she always really encouraged me. I'm very lucky because I learned so much from her, but also both of my parents were very supportive of me wanting to be a writer. And I know that that's something that not a lot of writers have because it's such an uncertain creative field. So I'm very lucky in that sense. Can you tell me about your book, When You Trap a Tiger? It's about a girl named Lily who has always grown up hearing her grandmother, her hominies, Korean fairy tales. And these are stories about tricky tigers that make dangerous deals with little girls. And like most kids, Lily believes that these stories are just stories. But one night, a tiger visits her, and she realizes that there's a lot more to these stories than her grandmother ever told her. And the tiger tells her that her hominy has many secrets. And one of these secrets is that hominy is sick. She has an illness that doctors cannot cure. And the tiger offers Lily one of these dangerous deals. If Lily will help the tiger, then the tiger will heal hominy. And Lily has to make a choice. She has grown up hearing about how you can never trust a tiger, and yet trusting this tiger is the only way to save her hominy. How much of these characters are, are you, and then how much is the part of the fiction and creative work? Yeah, so when I first started writing the first book, a lot of it was, in my mind, I was writing a lot about myself, and I had to in later drafts, you do different things to separate myself from the main character because I realized that when I was thinking of the character as myself, I was too afraid to take risks and to let the character feel things that I was ashamed to feel. So I would distance her in different ways from myself. One of the ways, actually, that I have done for both books is that the book is not set in Hawaii. So the character has grows up in a very different way than I did. And with the second book, part of that is that she faces a lot of racism. She grows up on the mainland and she's Asian. And there is a part of her that feels like she's never accepted in her own country because of that. And I'm lucky enough, growing up in Hawaii, so many people are Asian, so many people are Hapa. And I never really had to question my own race in that way until I moved. So. I, a lot of what I'm putting into the second book in that way is my experience as an adult rather than as a child. I, I know you wrote an essay on that and growing up biracial here being a lot different than on the mainland. What, mm -hmm. what are the biggest contrasts for you being on the mainland versus growing up here in Hawaii? I mean, everyone here knows what hapa is, right? It's very, very common. It's just accepted. But on the mainland, Apparently, it's very rare. I didn't realize until I moved how rare it is to be biracial at all. And it's not something that a lot of people understand. And a lot of people try to put others into one box 
and I can either be white or Asian, but it's hard for people to understand how I can be both. And when I was writing the second book, I wanted to write a book that really celebrated being Hapa. I wanted to talk about the racism, but I also wanted to talk about the joys that I experienced. And when I told people that I was writing a book about being Korean American, a lot of people on the mainland assumed that it would be a book about pain and struggle and how hard it is to be Asian in America. And actually, I wanted to show that it's a wonderful thing. It's something that I'm very proud of. I have so many stories and so many traditions to draw from, and I'm very proud to be who I am. The genre is a middle grade contemporary. What draws you to write for this, uh, in this genre and for this audience? To be totally honest, I had a really hard time in middle school. I, uh, I had a lot of negative experiences with bullying and with friendships and in school. And I think a lot of what draws me back is I feel very strongly that kids that age are going through a lot and they don't really know who to reach out to or how to talk about it. And I, I want to show them that they're not alone if they're struggling. How do you research and stay up to date with what middle, middle school kids are up to? Oh, my gosh. I don't think I do. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's kind of impossible to do that, partly because I'm ancient now to them. And <laughs> also because when I finish the book, it's still two years before the book is published. So even if I was exactly up to date when I finished it, it would already be out of date by the time the book comes out. So I think that trying to stay on top of trends on social media or slang or anything like that is it's kind of a losing battle so what i try to do is i focus really on the very human feelings because i don't think that changes can you talk about the creative process what would be good advice for authors this to you know if you can share some insight on how your day looks uh, so I get a lot of questions about how my day looks and i always want to know how other authors how how they schedule their time I always wish that I could say something like, you know, I'm, I'm very regimented. I wake up at 7 a.m. and then sit by my scenic window with my coffee and I write all day. Um, it doesn't usually turn out that way. It's, it's usually a lot more scattered. I'm almost always taking notes. I'll type in a note on my phone if I overhear something, a line of dialogue that sounds interesting, or if I think of a plot point. I have post-it notes everywhere in our house. My husband is used to this by now. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> it's kind of chaos. So the creative process is a bit messy, but I always find it to be a lot of fun. What advice would you give to authors or people who want uh, writers and aspiring authors? I think that I would say to remember that writing is a joyful process. There's a lot of pressure when you're thinking about getting published, both before you're published and then after you're published because you're worried about how people are gonna think about your books. But it's a very fun experience to write a book, even if you're working very hard. And I think remembering to enjoy the process and not, not beat yourself up too much when a story's not working. That was Tay Keller, author of When You Trap a Tiger, talking to HPR's Jason Ubai. 
She is the current winner of the Newbery Medal, which honors the author of the most distinguished contribution to American literature for children. She's also giving a virtual talk today through the Hawaii State Public Library. Visit libraryshawaii.org to sign up.